1: So it's the first Sunday after Christmas. It's uh, this Sunday and next Sunday are two Sundays that straddle a day on the liturgical calendar, that is to say the calendar of worship that Christians use around the world, called Epiphany. Epiphany is officially on January 6th. It is the first day after the 12 days of Christmas. So we're still in the Christmastide season. But what we're going to do, because we don't have a service on January 6th, but rather a party. Did you remember? We're going to actually sort of celebrate Epiphany on the two Sundays that straddle that date, on the 1st, today, and on the 8th. So you know what an Epiphany is when you have one, right? It's like when you suddenly know something you didn't know before. It's a realization that comes to you sort of quick, quick, like you didn't necessarily study for this exam, but suddenly you know. On the liturgical calendar, an Epiphany is a revelation of God. It's a new understanding that changes everything about everything. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is the traditional reading for Epiphany. We're moving it a little bit ahead to today so we can hear this story together. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, oh, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, that is to say, the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage." Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went home by another way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. six years ago somebody gave me a wondrous gift i had been part of a gathering of about 80 community innovators from all over the united states a bunch of wildly optimistic people who were trying all kinds of new ways to gather people into communities of trust and love not many of us were trying that in the religious space religion having been recognized as something that too often diminishes and degrades communal human flourishing. But all of us had in common that we were taking huge chances on our conviction that human beings need each other and need a sense of purpose for our lives and will respond to a genuine offer of companionship of safe space for exploration of life's great mysteries, together. The only problem is, none of us really knew how to do that. None of us really knew how to do what we were mostly already doing. It was the classic build this airplane while you're flying it scenario, and we were all terrified of crashing. Mostly because we had convinced a bunch of other people to climb on board with us, people who believed that we knew how to fly this thing. Anyway, at the end of the gathering of community innovators, the organizers, I think, were a little worried about us. And they sent us all home with a promise that they were going to try and match each one of us with a coach, someone with the skills and training to just help us think better about what we each were trying to do. And sure enough, within about six weeks time, I got my first email from Victoria in North Carolina. And in that email, Victoria said one of the loveliest things I had ever heard. She said, I've heard a little bit about Galileo Church and I've noodled around on your website and I cannot wait to learn more about what y'all are doing. I am so curious about where you've been and where you're going. Let's talk soon. Victoria and I have been talking just about every month for six years. We have only met in person twice. And the second time was just last week when she was in Dallas to visit some relatives and she made time for coffee and conversation with me. And she brought me presents. A little Christmas tree ornament that she had made from an oyster shell that she found on a North Carolina beach. Some resources for a new course that I'm teaching at Bright this summer. But the very best gift she gave me is the one she has been giving me for all these years. Her curiosity about all of you, about all of us, and how we are making our life together, and how we are honoring our missional priorities, and how we are learning to love in the way of Jesus, and how we are rehabilitating our beat-up, broken theology, and how we are organizing ourselves to keep doing all of that. It is a selfless gift the gift of curiosity. It turns attention away from oneself toward another. Curiosity gives up control. It lets someone else drive. It focuses the attention on following someone else's logic, focuses the heart on feeling someone else's feelings. Curiosity is a prerequisite for compassion. If compassion is feeling with You cannot feel with or have compassion until you know what someone else is feeling, and you cannot know what they're feeling until you ask. That bears repeating. You cannot know what someone else is feeling until you ask. Even if you think you know, curiosity demands that you ask. Because that's the other thing about curiosity. It suspends certainty for a while. To be truly curious requires a kind of pretending. Pretending not to already know what you think. Pretending not to already know what you think you know. Pretending not to feel what you already feel about what you already think you know. To be curious is to unclench your fist, to release the tight grip you have on whatever knowledge and perspective you have already obtained, to open the hand at the risk of losing what you've already got in order to make room for something you don't even know if you want just yet. And curiosity is a Christian virtue. Now, I was not taught that as a kid. Curiosity could get a person in a lot of trouble in the religious system of my upbringing, especially if your exploration led you to a different conclusion than the received tradition, the certainty that we were supposed to be most proud of and most reliant on. But the stories of our ancestors in faith honor curiosity again and again and again. Some of you will be familiar with my riff on Moses and that burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. You know, out in the wilderness, Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep where he spies with his little eye a smoking shrub. It's on fire, but it isn't burning up. And Moses says to himself, or maybe to the sheep, I must turn aside. And look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Now, one way to understand that story is that God sought Moses specifically, squatting behind the cedar trees, flicking God's bick impatiently while waiting for that specific shepherd to happen by so God could light up the magic shrub just in time for Moses and Moses only to catch a glimpse and understand it as a summons to a major career change and potential fame of biblical proportions. But another way to tell that story is That bush was on fire for a long damn time before anybody bothered to stop. I mean, lots of people could have seen it out there. Other shepherds in a hurry to get home for breakfast, kids in a rush to beat their curfew, anybody with an errand to run out in the wilderness. People with too much predetermined purpose to stop for something weird, something out of the ordinary that would require veering off course. Only Moses said... I must turn aside and look and see why the bush is not burned up. Because the story says that when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, well, that's when God called his name. That's when God decided Moses would be God's guy on the ground, the one to return to Egypt and demand the release of God's people from Pharaoh's clenched fist. I have the same Midrashic imagination for lots of stories in the Gospels. To how many fishermen, for example, did Jesus offer the invitation to come and see? Peter, Andrew, James, and John said, sure. But I'm guessing there were many more who said, nah, man, I got stuff to do and you're stepping on my net. Go on. Shoo. And how about that tax collector, Zacchaeus, the one in the tree, trying so hard to see over the heads of his neighbors? Zacchaeus was not a good person. He wasn't even a nice person. But out of all the people on the roadside that day, Jesus went home with Zacchaeus to have dinner and drinks and meet all his friends because, I think jesus was curious about zacchaeus's curiosity i mean what makes a grown person leave all their dignity on the ground while they scramble up a tree to see what all the talk is about zacchaeus is curious it's a good gift that he gives to jesus and jesus is in turn curious about him there are so many more Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, sitting at Jesus' feet because she just cannot tear herself away from his teaching while her sister fumes over having to get dinner ready by herself. Nicodemus, who risks his whole reputation as a VRP to have a one-on-one conversation with a stranger from Nazareth who talks of nothing but the reign of God. James, the elder head of that Jerusalem church who gives space and time for Peter and Paul and Barnabas to talk about all the places the Spirit of God keeps showing up, even when the scriptures say the Spirit of God should not be there. I could go on. If you are curious, you can ask me later. There is an old proverb, so old that it's in the biblical book of Proverbs. Chapter 25, it is the glory of God to hide a thing. It is the glory of kings to find it out. It seems to say that the universe is full of mystery on purpose. That reality is infused with facts and truth we have not yet discovered that God has created a cosmic hide-and-seek game for our pleasure and exploration. All we got to do is open our hands and open our eyes and open our minds to witness the wonder and beauty of what we do not yet know, even what we don't yet know we don't know. Which gets me, finally, to the magi of Matthew chapter 2. Wise men, our translation calls them, but that's kind of a stretch. I mean, for one thing, they don't have to be men. Just do that thought experiment for a minute. Isn't that curious? And for another, it could just as easily say astronomers or astrologers, scientists or academics, mathematicians or philosophers. They were all those things. The disciplines were not as delineated then as they are now. The magi of a couple thousand years ago were people of means and education. They were professional wanderers who studied and observed, who kept notes and read other people's notes and treated discovery and learning as a vocation They did not only gather data. What made a magus a magus was the interest in turning information into meaning. Magi were, in a word, curious about everything, all the time. Which is why they would travel a great distance at no small expense just to get a look at a newborn baby who, according to their star charts, augured a swerve in the future history of geopolitics. They came with gentle reverence and generous well-wishes in hopes of seeing with their own eyes what the skies told them was happening in the backwater of Bethlehem in that no-count territory of Judea. Something big, the stars said, something unprecedented, something wonderful and deserving of celebration. What I'm most curious about is what happened to that little company of seekers when they went home from their excursion, because that's what they did. It took them maybe a couple years to get there. They spent, I don't know, a night or two. Then they packed up their camels and did the whole thing in reverse. Here's what they did not do. They did not convert to Judaism and begin to worship the one true God. They were not baptized for the remission of their sins in Jesus' name. They did not hang around for another 30 years or so waiting for him to start his ministry so they could follow him along with the other disciples. I am imagining, though, that like all heroes' journeys, when you loop out to the frontier or the battlefront or the West Coast or the Gaborhood or Bethlehem or whatever foreign land is calling your name, when you loop out to there and then you've come to journey's end and you've met God out under the stars, when you have discarded everything extra you were carrying and have gathered only what remains to return home again by another way, you are not the same as when you left. You come home different, and everybody who knows you can see it. I'm imagining that the Magi, however many of them there were, brought back stories of that toddling prince living in a hovel in Nowheresville with his earnest but naive parents, destined somehow to rise to the ranks of royalty. They wondered what kind of plan it could be that a great ruler would arise from such small circumstances. They told stories about the frightened current king, and the warning that came to them in a dream they all had on the same night. Imagine that. A dream full of warning that their public way of wondering had gotten them on the current king's shit list. They mused about how powerful you really are if you're always afraid of losing power. They told about the feeling they could not shake the feeling that nothing would ever be the same for Bethlehem or Judea or for the rest of the whole wide world. They pondered how it would play out for themselves and their beloveds, this new world order that they could sense just beneath the surface, like like seeds germinating in the soil of the earth, like stars shimmering their siren song in the sky overhead. They wondered... And mused and pondered and looked to the skies and looked to each other. And in my imagination, they started planning their next journey. Beloveds, may the year to come be a year of curiosity and wonder for us too. May we find or make the time for exploring that which we do not yet know. May we approach old doctrine, long-time relationships, settled self-knowledge with open eyes and open minds. May we be ready to find God where God ought not be. May the virtue of curiosity be ours, and may we find the creativity and courage to pursue even that which may upend what we thought we knew for sure. It has been God's glory to hide things in this world God still loves. It is our glory to find them out together. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone.
0: Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.